right, Psalm 47. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. What I want you to imagine and picture, you know, just whatever sport contest you can think of where the crowd is roaring. You think of a standing ovation for an individual walking into a room. I like to think of a State of the Union address when the president walks into the room. The entire room is on their feet. May not be for the man himself, but it's definitely for the office, for the position, just all that's going on. So get rid of politics out of your mind for a second. We're going to come back into politics quite heavily today. But just imagine the, if Jesus were to walk into this room right now, what kind of ovation does he deserve? That's what the psalmist is trying to draw out of us. Oh, clap your head. Think of the applause. Shout and praise and thank and roar in regards to who he is with the voice of triumph, of victory. Verse 2, for the Lord most high is awesome. We use that word all the time in our culture. He is fearful. When you look at him, when you consider him, your emotion ought to be awe. Who is this? What is he? How do like just in all the ways that he acts in our life, he is most high and he is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth, not just of the house of Israel, over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up. He's ascended to his throne with a shout. The Lord, with the sound of the trumpet, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. Oh, may he give us understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Pretty good song, melody in regards to the kingship of God. Yes or no? What do you think? Okay, this morning's sermon title is Rejected. How many of you have been, uh, you don't need to raise your hands because we've been all been rejected in one context or another. But who likes rejection? Anybody? Has it ever brought about tears, anger, pain, suffering? We've been rejected by those who we want to love us. We've all gone through relationship breakups to one degree or another. Some of you as parents have been rejected by your children. Some of you have been rejected from the promotion or the job that you've been applying for. I get judged and rejected every single week whether or not people like my teaching. The worship team gets rejected every single week whether or not people like the worship and the style that they present. We sit in all different kinds of rejection, and it hurts. Usually we get defensive. 
you know, for as you mature in the Lord, you take those emotions to the Lord. Some of that rejection is real. Some of it's not. Some of it's just in our head. As a follower of Christ, we are told very clearly, you will be rejected regardless of the time and the culture that you live in if you love Jesus as your king. Because he is the king that stands in opposition to all other kings. So now turn to 1 Samuel 8. And just like last week was a pretty major chapter in the idea of repentance, of turning back, of having done the wrong thing, now doing the right thing, the establishment of all these pillars, you know, the, there, was a, there was a restoration in that relationship with the Lord in chapter 7. There's a victory that God and God alone has provided in the culture. And now we're sitting in these definitions of what a judge is and what a king is. So we're going to read through chapter 8 just to get the whole context under our belt and in our minds. Just like I want you to have, keep Psalm 47 in your mind. Because I want you to sit in Samuel's emotion. And I want you to sit in, in the reality of God and understanding that he is being rejected as their king. Just as Jesus was being tried and Pontius Pilate says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And what did the Jews say? We don't have any other king but Caesar. There was a rejection of who Jesus was, who he displayed himself to be in the culture. So I want you to keep in mind where God belongs as king over all the nations and the joy and the shouting and the praises that that should generate in us always. I want you to keep in context of what we've already gone through in Samuel and what's going on in the culture. And we're going to come back and highlight these things, but as we read chapter 8. So now it comes to pass when Samuel was old... That he had made his son judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us, appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel. They said, this is bad, this is wrong, is Samuel's emotion. When they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people. And all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me, abandoned me, and served other, other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voices. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior, the judgment, the justice 
is the word of the king who will reign over you. Repetitiously, he will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. You will cry out in that day because your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. All right, so this is why we've titled this entire study through First and Second Samuel, Kingdoms. Because there is a competition and a contrast of kingdoms. You have God as king and what his kingdom is and what it represents and what it will be for all eternity. And then you have man's kings and kingdoms, right? So as we sit in chapter 8, this is, this is a major transition in the history of the nation of Israel. But with the idea of rejection and rejecting God as king, rejecting his authority, rejecting his commands, you don't have to get beyond chapter 2 of Genesis. Because who, well, chapter 3 of Genesis, who is in the garden rejecting God as king and God in God's authority? The serpent is there, who we are told is Satan, the dragon of old, and all that he represents in opposition to God as a created spirit. And we have him telling Adam and Eve that God's way and ways are not the right way. His commands are wrong. He is not right. He is withholding from you. Therefore, reject him and reject his way and do it your way. Any of you recognize this heart? I do because it's my heart. I have to constantly submit me, my will, my desires, my way to my king, who I tell myself every single day, there is not any conscious ounce of me that desires to be in disobedience to Jesus. But I sit with Paul in Romans chapter 8, and oh, wretched man that I am, I find this war and this conflict within me. I find myself not doing the things that I want to to love Jesus. I find myself doing the things that I don't want to do in rebellion to Jesus. And we're told in Romans 8 that it's, it's his spirit that is within us. 
He is the one that as, as we walk in the Spirit and as we're not walking in our flesh and after our own desires, he leads us in these paths and roads of victory. But just like Adam and Eve in the garden, I, I hear that temptation to do it your way. I hear that temptation that God's way doesn't work. We're going to flow through a little bit of history real quick, but when we get back to chapter 8, ultimately what the house of Israel is saying is God's way just is not working for us. They look at their landscape of life, and they look at where they stand in the station and comparing themselves to the nations around them. And they're saying, God's way is not working for us. They see a political issue and they have a political solution for it. And they are totally ignoring the spiritual roots of the issues that they have. They are in disobedience and idolatry to God. They are disobeying his commands, and that's why they find themselves in their condition, culturally. But they, when they get together and they have conversations about it, they're sitting there saying, you know, following God just isn't working for us. So we want a king just like all the other nations around us is their heart. But he sits in the Old Testament's history. God chose one man, right? He called Abraham out of a nation, out of a kingdom, away from a king, away from a family, away from a clan and a tribe to come to him, to follow him, to give him a land that he was going to promise to him. He told Abraham all the way in Genesis 12 that kings were going to come from his body. So the idea of a kingship, it's not outside of the will of God. However, man as king has major issues. We're going to sit in Saul, major issues. We're going to sit in David, great king, also some major issues. And we're going to travel with this as we go through the books of Samuel. But when you sit in him calling Abraham, calling him to himself, even that difficulty of leaving his culture, it seemed like that that was easy, but leaving his family was not. He didn't truly leave his father's household until dad died, until he had that freedom. And even when he came, he came with family members. He came with his, a household. But in that, as you, as you follow the line, God chose a man out of the kingdoms of the world to be king to that man and to his household. We're told that God chose Abraham because he knew that Abraham was going to teach his children righteousness and justice. The word mishpat is the word for justice in Hebrew. The idea of the behavior of the kings, the justice of the kings is this very foundational word in the Old Testament. It has, it has deep meaning in regards to the culture. So God is sovereign over Abraham. He becomes sovereign over Isaac, Abraham's son. Laughter. Calls, gives God the title, the fear of Isaac in that relationship as they were sojourning in a foreign land, right? Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob as twins. The lesser is the one that God favors even though they both have major issues. Jacob has 12 sons, which are now these 12 tribes of Israel, these 12 clans. These 12 sons are from four different women. There's in their upbringing, there was always contention. Yes, unity in blood, unity in genetics. 
unity and in life in a lot of ways because they're all together. But still, even as they go into, into Egypt and God lifts up Joseph as a head and as a leader, not only in Egypt, but over his brethren, he was never a king. And as you travel through, you know, you sit in Exodus and the Jews find themselves in slavery. Who does God send to them? Since Moses, what was Moses? Was Moses a king? He was never meant to be a king, and he would never established himself as a king. Moses was a prophet called by God, appointed by God, to be a mouthpiece of God, to be used by God so that God, through God's outstretched arm, through his power, he would declare himself to be sovereign over the kingdom of Egypt and all of Egypt's gods. Once Moses passes away, does Moses' children become the leaders in the house of Israel? They don't. There's, there's no, there, within a prophet's role, there isn't a hereditarial, is that a word? Probably not, but you know what I'm saying. It doesn't pass from father to son, mother to daughter, right? It's not, you know what the word is? I don't, anyways, moving on. The priesthood there was. You had to be a son of Aaron to be a priest. But as you fast forward into Judges, Joshua has died. You have the 12 tribes of Israel in the land. They have not conquered the whole land. The enemies are still in the land. You're dealing with tribes. You're dealing with clans of people. They come together for war. And then they disperse back to their areas. But underneath the order and the authority of judges, a judge was an individual that God called to rise to the surface, to rise to a position of leadership. And usually it was within a tribe or within an area or within a few tribes for the specific purpose of deliverance from an enemy. So a judge, the role of this judge, there was no central administration, right? There wasn't a judge's courthouse. There wasn't a judge's administration staff. A judge did not have authority over the standing army of all the tribes of Israel. But a judge, the Lord was the one who called an individual to the surface to satisfy a specific calling from God for the people. Does that make sense? So when you sit in, in the book of Judges, there's 13 judges who are listed in their different stories. Eli would be the 14th. Samuel is the 15th judge that we have listed out in the Bible. And we're told that Samuel is the last judge. And the nation is looking back at the last 400 years of their history, militarily, politically, economically, it's just not working out for them. But they're comparing themselves on a very surface worldly plane. They're not considering their relationship and their disobedience to God because God very clearly spells out, if you obey me, if you do what I tell you to do, you will be blessed. You will be protected. You will be provided for. If you don't, a curse is there. A punishment is there. A disobedience is there. Consequences are there. And you watch the cycle, you watch the spiral, and they repetitiously go off the edge, cry out to the Lord, 
the Lord rises, raises up an individual. And the, the main focus of this, in that context, God was always the sovereign. This was to be a theocracy where there is not a man, there is not a woman, there is not a system who is the central authority figure. The Almighty God who created the heavens and the earth is to be the central authority figure. And that is true today in the body of Christ. There is no church leader. There is no government leader. Those who are put into positions of leadership, we are told they are ministers of God in civil government and within the body of Christ. Jesus is on the throne always. Now, we're sitting in this transition from 400 years of judges into a future from this point of 400 years of kings. And the king that they ask for so that they can be like the other nations, the solution that they're asking for doesn't work out for them. There's some good kings, not many, but there's some good kings in the pages that we'll be reading who love the Lord, who submitted to the Lord who took on that role with seriousness and the weight of that relationship with God and what God had called them to. You watch Solomon in the beginning. God, I don't know how. I don't know how to take the people out. I don't know how to bring them in. Give me wisdom to lead this people of yours. That's a good king. But even you watch Solomon's life. What does Solomon do? He turns to stuff that he ought not to. I'm not going to get in there, but Deuteronomy 16 talks, uh, God gives the command for them to appoint judges and to appoint military commanders and leaders in the nation, in their tribes. They consolidate for as God led them and disperse back into their, their individual allotted lands as, as God led. Very specific. But in Deuteronomy 17, God says, when you choose a king that you want like all the other nations, here's what I want the king to do. I don't want the king to put all of his energy and effort into a big military because then you're going to look to your own might and not look to the Lord. As a king, I don't want you to add to yourselves gold and silver. Money is not the end for a king. But so many kings do that, right? They consolidate all of this wealth and power to themselves. The king shall not add to himself wives. All these political treaties and the perversion that goes along with the harem and polygamy. Why? Because your heart is going to turn away from the Lord. Here is my king. This is what I want my king to do. I want my king, the king that you choose, I want him to take the law. Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and I want the king to write his own copy. I want that king to take the Bible, the law, from the priests, and I want the king to write his own copy so that he knows it, so that it's with him, so that he considers it, always in subservience and subjection and obedience to who the true authority is. You feel all this? I, I hope you do, because like this kind of rejection, what is, what is going on in this chapter is God's way stinks, our way is better, 
let's do it our way. They are removing themselves from having God as the central authority for them. And now they are moving for, and this, it directs the people to look at a man or to look at a woman for that leadership rather than to almighty God. And you watch what kings have done throughout history. Is a king, well, not is, typically, a king is also the religious leader for his kingdom. Very often, the kings of this era, at the time that we're talking about in Samuel's time, as we flow through what's more familiar for us is European kingship and all that that looks like. If you're familiar with more Eastern kingship and emperors, that's what the biblical uh, uh, context would look like. But a king recognizes that there is a supreme being that has given me an authority. Pharaoh recognizes that there is a supreme being, that there are gods who have given him authority as a god among men and that he would one day become a god also. This is the, the theology of Egypt. And you can see in the ancient Near East how a, a, a man as king was looked to as that divine connection, appointed by God, spokesperson for God, to lead us in, in all of that. Now, in Israel, you had a segregation of these duties, right? You had a difference of priest, of, of king, of prophet. We watch all these being consolidated in Jesus, clearly. We talked about before, we see a lot of consolidation in Samuel. Samuel's a prophet. Samuel is a judge under God. Samuel is also acting as priest, but not high priest in, in his time and in his context. But this king, what they're asking for is the house of Israel under judges. There's no central administration. There's no central military power. And that, there's no, you know, there's no central economic power to make treaties and all those kinds of things with the lands around them. So they're, they're sitting in their lack. And I guarantee that if I was alive during this time, I would look at the lay of the land and I'd probably be in agreement with the house of Israel outside of what I know to be true and what they're doing in rejecting God. I hope that I would be like Samuel, being displeased with these actions. But this is what the nation of Israel is doing in this moment. They are declaring their independence from God. How many of you read through our Declaration of Independence? I sat in it again this week. You just, you just you sit and read through it. And you have a historical culture of our forefathers in this land underneath the authority of the king of England. And the king of England was a bad king, and the people had complaints. And in this complaint, and in the beginning of the Revolutionary War and all that's going on, we have this document. Again, there was some history leading up to it, and there's history after it. But here you have this document on this day, a unanimous declaration of we are independent 
from the king of England. All ties with him are completely and totally severed. We are independent states united together. That is the declaration of independence. That is exactly what the nation of Israel is doing. Whether they know it or not, that is exactly what they are declaring. God's way is not mishpat. It is not just. God's way is not bringing about righteousness. God's way is not bringing about the promised land of milk and honey in its economy. We are suffering. We are the constant slaves of the Philistines. We are in constant conflict. We need a king like the other nations around us so that king can centralize power. The people are going to give power to the king. To what? Centralize power, form an administration, appoint commanders over a standing army, stand in that gap to go out to war for us, right? Who wants to go to war? We have a military, we have a standing army in our country that is underneath the authority of our president and our Congress. We have generals in place and all the authority structure where people, this is their professional duty, is to stand in that gap as military so the citizens don't have to go to war when war is necessary. Is that a good thing? I think, I think it's a pretty good thing. This is what their nation's asking for. Because war at this time was subject to the authority of the tribes. You had elders and leaders in the tribes you had training that was going on in that kind of organization. But when you pull all of those tribes together, who's the leader? God's supposed to be the leader. Underneath, God is to be this judge, this deliverer, usually this military leader for what deliverance salvation needs to occur. And they're sick of it. It doesn't work. It's not producing a fruit. So this is what a king is going to do, is going to consolidate all of this power in a standing army, in administration. There's going to be taxation, so things are going to be taxed so that the, the goods and services can be provided to the people. There's a stability there. And again, what they're doing is that they're looking to all the other nations and what the other nations have going on rather than looking to the word of God, because what did God tell the nation of Israel that they were to be? They weren't supposed to be like the other nations. They were, supposed, they were called to the Lord and separated to the Lord to be separate, to be holy, to be a, a whole kingdom of priests unto him underneath his kingship and underneath his authority. They were supposed to be different. That's the point of the law. That's the point of the separation. So that they could be a witness to all peoples and all nations who the true and living God is. And because they disobeyed what God said, here's the repetition that they are going through. They're looking at political issues. Samuel's been a good leader. Samuel, you've been good to us, but you're old. You're not getting around that much anymore. 
Samuel's area of influence was pretty limited. Samuel's sons, again, judges were not, it wasn't an inherited position. When the people try and establish Gideon's sons over them, Gideon, you rule over us and your sons and your grandsons. Gideon says, uh-uh, the Lord is supposed to rule over you. So even Samuel, Samuel off here, he's appointed his sons as judges all the way in the south in a different area than he is. And what are they doing? Perverting, twisting justice, twisting mishpat. In opposition to God, taking bribes. And the people, again, they're, they're looking at their system, they're looking at their culture, they're looking at the nations around them, and they're in agreement, this is not working. So in that, Samuel, appoint us a judge, or appoint us a king, so that we can be all like the other nations. Samuel's feeling that rejection in his own way. He knows the word of God and the consequences of turning back to a different form of idolatry and idolizing government. Out of God's mouth, it's they're not rejecting, they're not refusing you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. They have continually forsaken me, abandoned me, served other gods. But here's the behavior of the king. We can sit in our own culture. This is one of the one of the things that, you know, just pull this into our context. Again, just in our government structure, our our uh, separation of powers is it's absolutely fabulous because it keeps wayward people in check. Because the the consistent tendency of human behavior outside of submission to God is to take, it's to consume, it's to consolidate. So you look at all of these definitions of what a king in this time period does, and you apply it even to our own government structure today, we have, we have a separation of power that prevents a lot of this. At the same time, we have a fascination with what kind of people? Charismatic leaders. You get an individual into a position of leadership, it is very hard to remove that person from that position of leadership. Whether it's in civil government, whether it's in church structures, whether it's in the business world. When you give somebody some power, it's, it's hard to take that away from them. We live in a culture that is consumed with stuff, with possessions, with greed, with more money, more power. We are obsessed with those who are rich in our culture. You go sit in the mainstream news media, who gets the voice in our culture? Those who have power in political positions? or those who have power because they've been successful in the business world, and they get the dominant voice in our culture just because they have. How many poor people do you know that are in positions of influence? Anybody? How many unsuccessful businessmen and women do you listen to as an example of uh, how to do business and an example of leadership? Anybody? 
You know, so those definitions that we have of success, those are the people that get lifted up in our culture, even if their character is totally contrary to what God says that he hates. Anybody read through Proverbs last month and see all the different character traits that God says he considers to be an abomination? Pride, liars, mockers, scoffers, those who divide. Behaviors of a king, they take. Do you want this government to take your children, yes or no? I mean, sit in what a kingship is. In this culture, a king has the authority to come to your household and take your children. There's a good-looking, strapping young man. He's mine. There's a beautiful young woman. She's mine. This is the behavior of a king. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. Your sons are going to be used in his administration. Hey, my son will be close to the king. I want my sons to be close to the king. Could be good, could be bad. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your land. The land is necessary to feed the army. The land is necessary to feed his officials, the administrators of the government. It's necessary. What, who gets the positions of authority underneath a king? The obedient ones or the disobedient ones? Obedient people get position. Who do you want surrounding? If you're a leader, who do you want underneath you? People who love you and adore you and who are going to do what you say? Or do you want those who are going to bring out the vision and question everything that you say? Wisdom says we want a multitude of counselors. But most kings, they just listen to their own hearts, their own desires. And again, we have testimony after testimony of this in this world. And all of this brings us down to that you will be his servants there in verse 17. In our country, are we the servants of our government? Seems like it sometimes, doesn't it? Anybody who is serving any, in any political, civic role in our nation is defined as a public servant. That the authority that they have, the duties that they are performing are at the will of the people and the people alone. And again, we want those who have the understanding of law. We want those who have the understanding of military endeavors, of economic endeavors. You look at the cabinet that sits under the president to lead in all of these different areas in our nation underneath the laws that have been granted to them by our Congress, which is always held, supposed to be held in light to our foundational principles in the Constitution, right? That's how our government works. In so many different ways, our government and all of that structure, do you feel like you're a slave and a servant of those who have power over you? In some ways, yes. In other ways, no. We have a tremendous amount of freedom in our culture. The culture that our founding fathers declared themselves independent from was a dominant and 
king who was demonstrating himself to be evil towards the people. So the people stripped that individual of that authority, and they formed their own government. Our forefathers in this country sat underneath this position of knowing what it felt like to be a slave, a servant of an evil institution of how it was working out in this nation. God is promising to them in their future, and when you watch this throughout the pages of the Old Testament, the people are who suffers when governments are wicked. We have a conversation in our country right now in regards to guns. And there is a political conversation, right? We're sitting in multiple horrific circumstances where innocent people are losing their lives at the hands of an insane individual doing something wicked. What do we do about it as a culture? What laws can we enforce? How do we solve this politically? How do we help people feel safe? That's a lot of the conversation. The biblical conversation is what in the world is wrong with people's hearts? And that's the conversation that God deals with. Because again, we sit in this, guns don't kill people, people kill people. But again, there's there's a heart issue that in, in submission to who Jesus is and his truth, that he has revealed it to us. We, we can know these things and understand these things. But we live in a society that has, half the population has a very different perspective on what the source of truth is, what the source of authority is, what the solution to our cultural problems are. And so often on, on both sides of the political spectrum in our, in our two-party system that we have, both sides can feel like they're the slaves and the servants of another. How dare you tell me this? How dare you tell me that? And there's this there's fight that goes on back and forth. The major application, I think, of this section is to already, always bring it back to your position of whose authority that you were underneath. I am a citizen of the king of heaven, first and foremost, always. That brings about in my life peace. I am content. I am provided for. I recognize that God has used my culture in many different ways to bring about the blessings that I have in my personal life. But even if the whole culture is going haywire, my life does not have to go haywire because I am on the foundation of Jesus Christ and his truth and his government. We are told in the next chapter that God is going to give them Saul. God gives them David. God gives them Solomon. God gives them Rehoboam. God gives them Jeroboam. God is the sovereign king over all the nations of the world. And whoever is in authority right now on this planet of 8 billion people, those who have civic governmental authority, the world around, whether they know it or not, they are underneath the sovereignty of God. So even in this chapter where the Jews, they feel like they are gaining a central authority that is independent from God. Yes, we want the positive aspects of God, but we're going to help God out and do it our way. 
We're going to have a, a man who is a king become our central authority rather than God being our central authority. Does God ever lose his sovereignty? That's Psalm 47 where we began this morning. He has always been. He always will be. He is always presently king and all the definition that that is. And any time that we find ourselves underneath the bondage of another, the Bible is very clear that we are the ones that have chosen for ourselves another king. There's something in my behavior. If I find myself in bondage in anything, there's something in my behavior in me that has rejected my king and is saying, God, you're doing good in categories A through no, I don't know, P, but Q through Z, you know, I need, to, I need to work these things out on my own, under my own government and my own structure. Does that make sense? Like there's a lot of, in your relationship with God, there's a lot of blessings. There's a lot of things that you like. But within all of our rebellious hearts, there are things that we don't like about God's ways. Do you like how God has brought about or how, how he has performed everything in your life. Faith brings about the, the, the positive answer, yes. But have you ever been in the position in the moment when God is doing something that you don't like it very much and you're crying out against him and you're even trying to do things your own way in a different way than his own process in your life? How many of you like to wait? How many of you, again, you find yourself in bondage to something and you cry out to God and you feel like God is not hearing your prayers? It could be very real in this situation. You're the one that asked for another king. You're the one that made some choices. And you have some consequences because of those choices. Anybody ever suffer in consequences from your own behavior? Have you ever suffered a rut in your mind because you made a decision 20 years ago, and you made it 19 years ago, and you made it 18 years ago. You found out 15 years ago, that's not the right way of thinking, that's not the right way of acting, and 15 years down the road, you're still thinking like the 20-year-old man. You ever have those mental ruts where you were fully dependent upon God to cleanse you and his grace and his mercy in your life, submitting yourself to the king, confessing how you've missed, confessing how you've refused him, how you've abandoned him, how you've rejected his authority and his kingship. And what is he there to do as a sovereign king? Take his sword and lop off your head? He invites you in. I love you. I understand you. I know your rebellion. I know the consequences that I've brought out. You, and again, in the New Testament context, God hears your prayers. But when you cry out to God for leadership, don't cry out to God for a human individual. Cry out to God for Jesus to be the king of your mind and your heart and your life, your context, because that's going to take care of your opinion on all the other external stuff. I don't know what your opinion is in American politics. It's important. 
we have an important role in, in regards to that, and we have a, a tremendous power and freedom as, as individual citizens in this nation to participate. But in all of your opinions on what's going on externally, I can guarantee to you 100% a man, a woman, or a law is not the answer. Jesus is always the answer. Jesus is always the one who needs to be communicated in power, in love, in teaching, in preaching, in conviction, in rebuke. It is always about Jesus. And when you stand in that position, when you stand upon him, when you are an ambassador for him, when you say his words, when you live out your life in obedience to him, you're going to be rejected. Does this culture that we live in want God? Dominantly, no. And if you're going to live in opposition to that, you're going to suffer rejection. You're going to be maligned. You're going to be hated. It's going to be painful. That persecution can be vocal. It can be physical. You could lose your job. Whatever that may be in our culture. But again, what I want you to be grounded in, in, in again, in this passage and um, the reality of what the house of Israel is doing, whether they understand it or not, what we need to understand is any time that we are looking for a solution to any problem outside of God, ultimately we are refusing him and rejecting him, and it's only going to lead to a position of crying out, whether it's individually, congregationally, or culturally, it is always the same. So worship team, come on up. And again, this, this is uh, where we began this morning. You know, there, there is a time... <laughs> Whether you're doing it physically or not, I hope that your knowledge of God, your understanding of who he is, that you already have this position today, and if you don't, that you're going to get to there, that you are giving him a standing ovation in every way, whether it's his activities in the culture, because there's a bunch of things that we don't like about the culture, and we want to say, why God, why haven't you fixed this? But that in all of his activities and that your opinions of him, that you are applauding him, that you see him as king, that you see him not only as your king, but the true sovereign king over all the nations, because that is what is real. And that that brings you to this, this joy of not just in yourself and not just oh, us corporately, but that you would constantly encourage and exhort people to praise God.